scriptures again and make our way to Matthew chapter 9. main focus this morning will be in verse 16, but I want to read a little bit before that and a little bit past that. So Matthew 9, we'll begin in verse 9 and read through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let me pray. Lord, deal bountiful with us, your servants, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes. Father, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Remind us that we are sojourners on this earth. Hide not your commandments from us. In Jesus' name, amen. So just just a moment about the setting, uh, where we are in Matthew 9, um, how we got here, who was here, and what's going on. So Jesus comes comes across to Matthew, who's a tax collector, uh, after coming back across the, the, the lake. And tax collectors in those days were thought of as filthy traitors to Israel. That's what they were seen as, and most of them were. They were collecting uh, more potentially than what they were supposed to, keeping the extra for themselves, 
and some of them were actually working with Rome. And so the Israelites uh, very much put tax collectors in the same categories of sinners. And so Jesus calls this tax collector, this sinner, to follow him. And Matthew obeyed the commandment, rose up, and followed him. And then Matthew didn't just leave Jesus or forget about what was going on or even forget about his fellow sinning tax collectors. But Matthew invites Jesus, all of Jesus' disciples, and some of his tax-collecting friends, and perhaps some other uh, sinning-type friends. It doesn't give us any indication. just calls them tax collectors and sinners. All over to Matthew's house for supper. And Jesus is found reclining at table, eating with tax collectors and sinners. But also somehow, whether Matthew knew them, I don't know, we've got Pharisees at this dinner as well. Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel at the time, who were starting to rub up against Jesus, causing a lot of friction between the two. But then not only that, at Matthew's house, we see also in um, the crowd some disciples of John the Baptist. So we've got a really mixed congregation at Matthew's house. Uh, The topic of conversation, from what we've seen, from what's told us, could probably be considered acts of righteousness. The Pharisees asked Jesus, why do you? And what were were they curious about? Why why do you eat with such people? Why put yourself so low and eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then John's disciples ask a similar question, but not why do you, but why don't you? Why don't you fast like us, John's disciples? Even the Pharisees fast. But what do we know about Jesus? They called him a drunkard and a glutton because he was a man who feasted. He was a man who ate. And he also ate with sinners. And so Jesus tends to act in ways throughout his life and ministry where he leaves people scratching their heads. They watch him and they say, why? Why? Are, and, and you notice it all throughout the Gospels, and you could even look back uh, a chapter or so and see as the disciples are crossing the lake and the storms come, and Jesus rebukes the winds and the waves and leaves the disciples scratching their heads and say, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And then in the next event, as Jesus exercises demons, sends them sends them into pigs. The pigs go and collide over the the cliff and drown in the lake. And the whole town comes out to see what Jesus does. And it leaves them scratching their heads and tells and then they end up saying to him, Leave us alone. They can't quite understand it. And then even to the Pharisees at Matthew's house and the tax collectors, you're eating with those people or you're eating that much or you're eating even at all why does jesus tend to have this effect on people well from our passage we have to understand something and that's the word new n-e-w jesus is doing something new amongst these people so new that it leaves them baffled and scratching their heads. We can see it as we look at these too many parables 
in verse 16 and 17 about uh, the garments and the wineskins, the repetition of the parable shows us a few themes. The first being new. Uh, either it's mentioned directly, um, new wine, new wineskins, or it's uh, spoken of indirectly uh, considering the old, that the old doesn't do and that new is needed. Um, but then a final theme, so there's new and old, obviously, but another theme that comes out of these two mini parables and these two small verses is, uh, is this. If you hang on to the old and try to mix it with the new, you're just going to make a bigger mess. Now, that you could take that in a lot of different ways, but I want to help us understand that a little bit clearer this morning. Let me say it again. Jesus has brought something new. He's doing something new, and it will not work with the old. Okay, it will not work with the old. Now, let me give some clarification on when I say new versus old. I'm not necessarily speaking about old and new covenant. All right. So let's not let's not go there first. You know, I'm not speaking about law versus gospel, animal sacrifice and purification rites versus the death and work and purification of Christ. Now, it's impossible to separate that from what we're going to talk about today. But the new versus old discussion that we're going to have this morning is more about the individual effect. Or let me say, let me say it this way. The effect on the individual by the new gospel, the gospel that is coming, the new work of Christ that he is doing. Think about the parables that we see. The parable is about something that is worn, like that you put on uh, in, in concerns of the garment. The other parable is about something that is being filled, about something, uh, something a container holding contents, the wineskins. This is a very personal parable, not necessarily talking about new covenant versus old covenant, but its effect on us, old and new. It boils down to this. All right, it boils down to this. Jesus came. He is, he was, he is, and still will do something new. And your old won't work with what Jesus is doing. If you keep your old garment on and try to patch it up, you'll make matters worse. If you try to take Jesus and what he is giving and put it in your old wineskins, the effect is going to be disastrous. They'll burst and be useless. You need a new garment. You need new wineskins, a new container. So when we think about what Jesus is doing and that it's new, it's good to think about it this way, or it's helpful to think about it this way. The world right now is upside down. I don't know where I heard, I heard this from somewhere, maybe from multiple places, and so it probably come from someone more wiser than I. But when we consider the world as it is, it's upside down. Okay, hang with me. Jesus has come to turn it right side up. Now, if Jesus came to an upside down world, to turn it right side up, and he came also upside down, he wouldn't get very far in trying to turn it right side up. 
So when Jesus walks into this world that upside, that's upside down and he comes in right side up, what do we think about him? He's upside down. Does that make sense? There's a lot of ups and downs there. But do you understand? When, when people are scratching their head and they're seeing Jesus, this new thing, they're like, that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But in essence, in reality, it is the way it's supposed to be. You and I are just upside down. Think about it. The meek will inherit the earth. See, don't don't be. It's such a cliche to us. We miss the point. No, if you actually look at the world, who does it feel inherits the earth? The powerful. The power hungry. But Jesus says, that's not the way it works, folks. The meek inherit the earth. Or uh, what about the first will be last? No, that, that's, that, that's not right. No, the first is first. Jesus says, that's upside down. That's wrong. The first will be last. And this is a, this is a doozy. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. Scratching the head. What Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? And this is his response. And think think about this in the context of his conversation with the Pharisees and John's disciples. Jesus says, I'm doing a new thing. I'm flipping the world upside down, which is actually right side up. That's what Jesus is doing. Theologically, we would call this new creation. New creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This isn't just so for the person, but Jesus is also saving the world. Right? He is redeeming his whole creation. What? Uh, this goes back to what we discussed last week about Christ being in you. The reality of being a Christian, hear me please, the reality of being a Christian, the reality of biblical Christianity is not just a tag on your life or a patch on your garment, right? It's not this, this uh, lifestyle that you set, you set alongside with your help and wisdom or your health and wisdom. No, Christianity, biblical Christianity, following Christ, being a Christian, is the divine working of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to redeem you, reconcile you, and remake you. That's what God is doing as he's flipping things right side up. He's redeeming, he's reconciling, and he's remaking. If anyone is in Christ, then Christ be in them, and they are a new creation. And when Jesus steps foot on the physical world, it will be made to a new creation. So the first parable, and this is the only one we're going to do this morning, we'll do wineskins this evening. Old garments, unshrunk cloth. Look at verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Okay. Let's think straightforward about the parable, not with its significance or symbolism. Um, 
back in Jesus' day, and probably not too long ago, people wore their clothes until they wore them out, right? They wore them until they wore them out. And when that first tear comes, that first hole comes, and it, the, the garment still has life in it, but you've got your first tear, what do you do? You patch it up. Well, thanks to the 90s grunge, grunge bands, we don't do that anymore. We just leave the holes and the tears, and now we make them that way. But that's the process. You wear a garment, and as you begin to wear it out, as it starts to find holes, you patch them up. But there is a problem. As you wear out your garment, it is it is becoming brittle. Fabric, the fabric shrinks. Um, it becomes worn out and flimsy. And now you get to the point where a patch isn't actually going to help because the garment itself has done as much movement and shrinking and is actually almost reversing itself and deteriorating. And a new patch, a patch that hasn't got uh, an old life in it, that hasn't been shrunk, if you were to put that patch on this worn out, uh, dilapidated uh, garment, this brittle garment, you put it on, and then that patch, that new patch begins to shrink, it's going to rip the garment, the hole, even bigger. And so Jesus says, we don't do that. We don't put new patches, unshrunk patches, on worn out clothing. So what's the point? What does he say? I mean, well, it's time to get new pants. That's what he's saying. It's time for a new garment. The old one's not going to work. Yours is beyond repair. Now, what does this mean? Well, I want I suggest that garment equates to your righteousness. Garment or your clothes in the scriptures equate to your righteousness and its condition. The the or we should say the quality of your righteousness. I want to take a minute to look at the biblical theology of garments and righteousness. And a biblical theology of something just means, what does the Bible say about this thing, this theme, from beginning to end? Um, and you can see that there is a theme of garments as it pertains to righteousness from Genesis to Revelation. It starts in the garden. We're not going to go and look at all the passages, but here's how I want to explain this to you. At creation, what garments were Adam and Eve wearing? Nothing. They were wearing no garments. And in whose presence did they stand? In God's. They needed no garments. In, in their uh, first created order, apart from any sin entering in, they needed no garments to cover them. In their relationship with one another, they didn't need them. And in their relationship with God, they didn't need them. But then came sin. Then came sin. Sin entered in and their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. What follows that? What was the next garment that Adam and Eve wore after their sin? Loincloths. Fig leaves. Whatever we want to call them. Right? Now... Did that help their interaction with one another? Yes, it did. They covered their shame, and so Adam and Eve were then able to 
continue in communion and relationship because even though they were naked, now they've covered up and then they can get back to sort of some sort of relationship and interaction with one another. But when God came to the garden, how did that loincloth work out for him? It didn't cover nothing. It didn't cover anything. God saw right through their loincloth and saw their shame and their guilt and their sin. Their loincloth, their their fig leaf helped them horizontally, but it did nothing for them vertically. They attempted to cover their shame by themselves. Hear that. They attempted to cover their shame by themselves with their own garments. God comes and sees their loincloths, but he does not leave them with them. He clothes them in animal skin, right? We see at the end of 3, Genesis 3, that he does not leave them in their loincloths, but covers them in animal skins. Where did that come from? The covers came from the skin of a sacrifice. This sets a major theme in all of Scripture. Mankind makes attempts to cover their own selves with their own garments, and while it might be sufficient for how we live with one another, in order to be put right before God, He must clothe you. He must put on garments for you. Isaiah 64, I got a few verses to help you see this idea of garments, righteousness, being uh, unclean or unrighteous in your own garments, but needing God to clothe you in righteous garb. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, and write these down and look at them later. I'm just going to go fast. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice. So that was the negative aspect, right? That's that's us trying to put on our own clothes to hide our shame. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Zechariah 3 verse 4 says this, He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with pure robes. Notice how the, let's see, the filthy garments are equated to what? Iniquity. And only God can take away those filthy garments and place upon you, clothe you, pure robes or vestments. And then Revelation 34, uh, Revelation 3 verse 4 says, You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled or defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So again, that comparison of us Soiling our own garments, our lack of righteousness, but only in Christ can we walk in clean white robes of righteousness. So here's what we have to understand. We will clothe ourselves with our own righteousness. This is what mankind does. I 
That was the point of taking you to Adam and Eve. This is what they did, and this is what we do outside of any operation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We try to cover ourselves, clothe ourselves, hide our shame with our own garbs, our own righteousness. How do we do that? Some of you might be doing it right now today. Sitting in this church, pretending to be Christians, acting in religion to cover your sin. Some people do it with charity. They give and they give and they give to as many causes as they possibly can in hopes to cover their sin, their shame, and their guilt. Some, some of us do it with acts of kindness. The, the, the agnostic or atheist who's the nicest person you've ever met. What are they doing? They're trying to cover their shame and guilt before God. And people... Uh, well, well, and then and then there's the possibility of clothing yourself with your own talents and gifts, which ironically have come to you from God. And it works. It works on a on a horizontal level. We fool one another all the time with our own garments, with our own garb, with our own righteousness and our church attendance, or our checkbooks or our acts of kindness to one another it, it those garments might even appear beautiful like new garments and people will stare and gawk but Jesus is telling us that garment won't work before God we cannot fool him he can still see the shame and nakedness of our sin as he did with Adam and Eve even under that pathetic loincloth we try to use to cover. Polluted garments. The Pharisees, what were they doing? They say, do you think you're more righteous because you don't eat with sinners? But what do they do? They try to make themselves righteous because they don't want to eat with sinners. Jesus calls them hypocrites. No matter who you eat with, no matter who you don't eat with, you're still in your sins, Pharisees. You can't just say, I'm going to patch this on and not do this or not do that. Churchgoer, do you think church attendance will cover you on that final day? Absolutely not. Church member, do you think your membership within a church will cover you when you stand before God? Absolutely not. Do you think your baptism will suffice in covering your shame and your guilt? Absolutely not. All your righteous deeds, all the covering you try to take on, is nothing but filthy rags. And it makes you unfit for the banquet hall in heaven. It makes you unfit for the wedding feast of the Lamb. But see, doing Christianity patchwork won't fly either. It's not, I'm, I'm going to just add Jesus into what I'm doing. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept him as Savior as if it's just something else I'm going to do in my life. I'm going to keep doing my good. I'm going to keep acting this way and doing this way. I'm just going to say, I, I'm a follower of Christ. You put the patch of Jesus on your own righteousness, and it's going to end up like this new garment. I mean, this old garment. And the worst tear is made. Here's the way we get messed up. 
Jesus plus me. Jesus plus me ends up in a bigger, greater tear. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. We must be clothed by God. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As Adam and Eve were clothed in the garments of the sacrifice. We too must be clothed by the one who sacrificed himself. This is the only way we stand before God. The only way to be acceptable in his sight is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And this is why he came. To take a bride and make her beautiful. There's a passage in Revelation. Look at it with me. Verse or chapter 19. This passage in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6, refers to this great marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the moment when Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride are in one in one another's presence for all eternity. Look at it with me. Revelation 19, verse 6. When I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Who, wait, who's the bride? It's the church. It's the Christian. But look what it says. The bride has made herself ready. Do you think she comes in in filthy garments or beautiful white robes? Look what it says in verse 8. How is she made beautiful? It was granted her to clothe herself. It was granted her. We have to understand what that word granted means. It means it was gifted. It was given. We have to understand where that gift comes from and how it is granted that the bride, the church of God, is made beautiful for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, it comes to us in Ephesians Five. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the groom, gives himself up for her, dies for her. But what does Ephesians 5 say he does in giving himself up for his bride? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It was granted to her by the bridegroom. 
the bridegroom Jesus Christ, gave himself for her, gave up his righteous life, and put himself on the cross. He who knew no sin, yet he became sin, so that we, the sinners, the unrighteousness, unrighteous, might become the righteousness of God. We who are ugly and filthy might be made beautiful in the garbs of Christ and his righteousness. It is through him that our garments are cleansed. It is through him that we are made holy and prepared for that final day. Presented in beauty and splendor. Clothed in the righteousness of the crucified lamb. What an upside down thing to do. To, to die in order to save. To give up in order to give. Life through dying, this is the right way. This is the new way. This is the gospel way. This is the way of God. Life through death. How do I get that new robe? How do I get that new garment? Because apart from it, you will be cast out away from the joy and presence of such supper. Paul tells us that Abraham was clothed in the righteousness of God when he believed God. When he believed him, not and we make I've said this before, not that you believe in him like you believe in Santa Claus, but that you believe him. You believe him. You believe God when he tells you that because of your sin, you stand guilty before him. You stand condemned already and you will pay an eternal price for your sin. The only way to be clothed in the righteousness of God is to believe God when he says that you are a sinner Bound for hell. The only way to receive the righteousness of God is to believe God when he tells you that your attempts at righteousness will only make matters worse. It will only rip your garments more. You may have have others fooled, but God sees right through it. You must believe God when he tells you that the only covering that is to be that is to cover you that will satisfy is the blood-stained white robe of Christ. And you say, that makes no sense. A blood-stained white robe. It is the purity of the blood of Christ. The red purity, the perfection of the blood of Christ is as white as can be. The only way to take that robe, to dawn on the righteousness of God, is to kneel before Him in humility and obedience. We must know that one who receives such a garment Standing in pride receives nothing. You cannot receive a garment as you stand in pride. But you only receive it in falling to your knees before the King of Kings and crying out for forgiveness and for righteousness that you have not earned. You must believe God and be clothed with the righteousness of God. Wear His new garment and be saved. And as Nora is doing, proclaim your faith through baptism. Show that you've been washed. That you've been crucified and been risen and that you've been raised from the dead. Show that you have joined the upside down because you are now right side up. You've gone into the water filthy. You come out washed by the blood and the righteousness of Christ. You've come out a new creation. Only by believing God and what he has done for you in your sins. There's two questions we ask a baptismal candidate always. And we'll ask them publicly to Nora. They've already been asked to her. 
Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent by the Father to live a life of righteousness and perfection but to die a death on a cross for your sins? The second question is if you believe that, do you desire by faith to turn from your sins, follow Jesus and obey Him all of the days of your life? Faith and repentance. That's what those two questions are. Are you ready to live a life of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ? And I call you today to believe God, to trust Christ, and be clothed in the white robes of righteousness, and be saved. Let's pray. Father, it is hard to believe that we who are so filthy could be made so clean. But Lord, it is a reminder of what you have done and your power and your grace and your promise keeping of giving the Spirit, of giving us your Son. And so, Lord, might your word go forth and bring about the power to bring faith and repentance to turn people from their sinful ways and to bring them to the feet of Christ, not just in a hollow profession, but in a hallowed way of life that they trust Jesus and follow him all of their days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing one more hymn before. Uh, let me give you uh, the idea of what we're going to do the, the, um, for this baptism. We're going to sing one more hymn, Rock of Ages. Then we will go out together as a body, and we will hear we will hear the profession of faith from Nora and her answering these two questions, and in your observing uh, observance of her after uh, her counsel with her pastor and father who also uh, is affirming her profession of faith. We affirm it together as the body of Christ and welcome her in. And as we conclude the baptism, we will have the elements of the Lord's Supper outside where we will uh, bring her into the body and she will partake with us as a brother and sister in Christ. Um, I I want to let uh, everyone know that we practice open communion, which means that the table is open to those who are in Christ, whether you're a member or a non-member here, but it is for only those who are baptized believers in Christ Jesus. And so uh, come to Christ as we uh, celebrate and observe Nora's profession of coming to Christ as well. So let's sing. Let's stand together and turn to 209. Black hymnal 209.
Amen. Now let's all be dismissed and go and um, gather around the baptismal.